0: This Choir Cast Podcast is brought to you by The Joy of Letting Go by Kevin Sweeney. When one of the great living mystics Richard Rohr writes, all great spirituality is somehow about letting go, do we just skim by it and look for the next great quote? Or do we allow this truth to utterly change our relationship with God, humanity, and reality itself? And if we accept letting go as the key to transformation, the question becomes how? How is each life-altering step of the spiritual journey somehow about letting go? Well, my new book, The Joy of Letting Go, is the answer to that question. My dream is that everyone who reads this will open up to the possibility that to engage everything from the concrete to the cosmic and from the tiniest arguments with your partner to the biggest social tragedies of our time without losing our joy, We have to learn how to let go.
1: Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. Hello, and welcome back to reframing our stories. Just to get things started, you should know that my neighbors are having work done on their house, which I wasn't prepared for. <laughs> so if you hear um drilling and sawing throughout this podcast, I apologize. That will be happening. And today, today's podcast might be and probably will be emotionally charged because we will be talking about a very, personal topic for many and one that is really creating turmoil in our country right now and that is around reproductive rights. It is a topic that I know has served as my biggest learning curve as a sex educator. I grew up in a middle-class family in a suburban town that was very safe and very white. I grew up attending a church regularly And I was taught, as many were, that sex before marriage was a sin and that abortion also was not okay. And so for a long time, my personal beliefs were as follows is I had always thought, well, I am pro-life for myself, but I'm pro-choice for others because there was a part of me that always thought I can't really tell others what they can do with their body. However, as I started become as I started to age or you know move out of adolescence and become um enter more into womanhood and as I started talking with more women and hearing their stories and then when I became a mother myself and then after I worked in foster care my views changed on this topic and I became pro-choice. I believe that parenthood is a calling and a choice. I don't think everyone is called to be a parent, but that doesn't mean that they also need to abstain from experience sexual pleasure. So what I didn't know as a white suburban Christian girl is that reproductive rights have a lot to do with race and accessibility. When I started taking the time to really study more about reproductive rights, I learned that the pro-life movement was built out of racism. And this is not something that's widely discussed when we talk about pro-life and pro-choice. I get the fact that many people have strong reactions around this from religious views and and things like that, which is okay. And I know that people may become angry at this, Right. But I think it's important for us to talk about, and I think it's really important for us to learn how to listen to people's stories, because what we know and what we've been learning is our country is not black and white, right? The issues, any issue is not a black and white issue. There's many things. And what we've learned is that all of this is, a, is based on systems that were built for us and why things work and why things don't and who they work for and who they don't. So too many of us hear the phrase pro-choice and pro-life and we shut down and we turn off our ability to hear. But I hope today you can hear in a new way and in a way that allows you to ponder more deeply your own personal beliefs, whatever they are, but also offer compassion to those who might have a different belief than you and to learn to understand why that is. So today I have invited Simran Singh Jan to our podcast simran is the national membership coordinator with sister song sister song is an organization that is a southern-based national membership organization whose purpose is to build an effective network of individuals and organizations to improve institutional policies and systems that impact the reproductive lives of marginalized communities Simran, who studied political science and gender and sexuality studies and served as a sexual violence response team member and consent educator, will explain the work of Sister Song and why reproductive rights are important for all of us. Simran, thank you so much for being here today.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Kara. I'm really excited to be starting this conversation with you.
1: Yes. Um, there's much to talk about and. I'm excited for this, but I've also have warned my listeners that I understand this is a sensitive topic. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I really want to talk about, um, you know, uh, often i I talked about in the intro talking about reproductive rights, but one of the things I want to mention, right, is um, reproductive justice. So if you're able to explain more about reproductive rights and what reproductive justice is, and then why reproductive justice is important, Yeah, yeah. Um, And so for instance, then why is it that sister song exists? If you could talk about that. Great, thank you. For sure,
2: yeah, so reproductive rights, I mean, the word rights is the part that's so central to that. So it's focused on the legal right to have an abortion and to access reproductive care. So it's very focused on laws, very focused on policy. And then I think that when I think about reproductive justice, I think about the three arms of reproductive, um autonomy so the reproductive rights piece being the legal piece reproductive Mm -hmm. health being the piece that is around your doctor or a Planned Parenthood wherever you're getting the care that you need and then reproductive justice is the culmination of reproductive rights and social justice so looking Mm -hmm. at abortion contraception reproductive autonomy but through a social justice lens so looking at it from a lens of privilege and power and access um, and bringing in those race conversations, gender conversations, um, those bigger intersections of marginalization into the conversation. And so that really leads into like where reproductive justice was created because the reproductive rights movement historically has been extremely white and extremely centered on cisgender women so and right. middle class women. And so during that time, um, Black and brown women came together and basically were like, This does not represent us. This is Mm -hmm. not, this movement is not speaking to our experiences. It is not speaking to our specific barriers when it comes to accessing abortion, first off, which comes to things like money, things like uh, traveling. but also, it's not speaking to our entire reproductive experience. So right. um, looking at the ways that the reproductive rights movement was not talking about things like forced sterilization. That still happens to this day in communities of color and in incarcerated communities um, of people being forcedly sterilized in modern day eugenics. That's something that doesn't happen to white middle class women. And right. so that wasn't being talked about. And that's something that is very much about reproduction. And so they said, we need a movement that's for us, that's by women of color for women of color. And so that's where reproductive justice is born as that culmination of social justice and reproductive rights. And as a movement that really centered the most marginalized in the in these processes. So the most um, marginalized people are at the center of this. So black and brown, trans people, um, and black women and poor women, poor people, um, just really centering the most marginalized folks. And Sister Song was created a couple of years after reproductive justice was coined. So it was coined as a phrase um, by a group of black women. Um, and it was then created as Sister Song as the first reproductive justice collective. So we were mm-hmm. a group of organizations all coming together to formally use that term reproductive justice as, um, our grounding our grounding framework and since then we've changed from a collective to a nonprofit, which has given us the access to funding and access to all kinds of having staff and all of that but we still share that same um, guiding principles
1: i feel um there's so much that you said there that i was like can we just go back and dig
0: <laughs> <Can we> just <laughs> totally <talk>
1: more <laughs> so one of the things again so i talked about how in the intro you know i grew up I'm a white cisgender woman who grew up in suburbia, who only knew kind of one way and only kind of the story that was given to me. And I was saying, like, really studying about sex and becoming a sex educator has been the one thing out of everything that I have studied. And I've done a lot of, you know, social sciences and things that Mm -hmm. has taught me, I think, the most about racism than any other thing. And within that, you know, opened the entire world of um about reproductive rights, you know, in the beginning of that and the beginning of the pro-life movement. And then I was, I remember just being shocked, you know, because it also shows my um naivete or whatever, however you say that. Um Around the fact, like, of the eugenics aspect and that there was actual sterilization happening of communities Mm -hmm. of color that I was just blown away by. So could Mm -hmm. you speak more to that? Because I think, I mean, one of the things I think a lot of people, and I'm going to say the white community don't understand, Mm -hmm. too, is that so much of this stuff with reproductive health and our rights fall into a systemic issue yeah and that uh, so many things play into one another and it's not just a cut and dry right it's not just like I think people like to put you know everything into a moral standard of right and wrong around this topic and there's so much more that goes into that
2: yeah absolutely
1: yeah if you can speak more to that that would be great
2: yeah, absolutely. I I totally agree. I mean, I did not know. I wouldn't have been able to tell you what the word is in mm-hmm. the last um four, few years of my life, and so um being able to have that understanding of the fact that there is a whole movement, there has historically been a whole movement of people who believe that some people deserve to have children and reproduce, and some people do not, and that they based on who gets to reproduce, they're gonna create a better race. And so like eugenics can be racialized, but it can also be through not allowing disabled people to have mm-hmm. sex resources and be able to reproduce, like being it, trying to weed out certain traits from our population is just like the fundamental basis of eugenics. And so, um, I mean, to this day, we still see it in, in um, but also in the past, they talk when you're looking at the ways that like, Puerto Rican women were given IUDs as a test because they were testing IUDs for the first time. They hadn't used (laughs) them, and we're and we're giving them as a test. And that's amazing. Like IUDs are incredible for society. Incredible, being able to have that kind of contraception is amazing. And also, at what cost? Of who who led us to this moment? Who was experimented on to get us to this place? Mm -hmm. I feel Like those are the conversations that we always forget. Of how many Puerto Rican women were given IUDs, but were not given any resources to get them taken out. And so they were stuck with them in their bodies and including past the time they were supposed to have them in there. And so that A, stops you from being able to reproduce while you have the IUD is working and also can sterilize you long-term if you're not getting the proper post-medical care. And they were given no opportunities for medical care. And just looking at the ways that um, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood was, openly eugenicist and Planned Parenthood does incredible, incredible work, incredible reproductive rights work, health work, and um, more recently, I believe, has been very much gaining in the reproductive justice field. Mm-hmm. Um, but the history is very dark. I mean, Margaret Sanger actively wanted to decide who had the right to have children and who didn't. She was openly a eugenicist. And to this day, our incarceration system will still offer people, specifically women, um, the opportunity to get a lower sentence if they agree to get sterilized. And so that choice. I think is like this bigger thing that I want to talk about when I'm talking about reproductive justice is what does choice actually look like? Because we talk about pro right. choice and choice right. only matters if you have a choice. Like you right. have to have the privilege to have a choice. If you're being told that you're not going to see your children for five years, but you can see them sooner, if you get sterilized, that's not a choice. That is a That is a false choice. Um, and so being able to look at the ways that marginalization really impacts our abilities to have any of those choices like that to me, sure, you could literally say, no, I won't do that. But that to me is still a forced sterilization. And I mean, yesterday we just had a conversation about fetal conditions
0: mm-hmm. um, with
2: Sister Song. We just led a conversation. I did not know a lot about that topic at all. I wouldn't have been able to really tell you anything about it. But we had this group of nurses who work in maternal and child health care come in and talk about fetal conditions. and. There were folks who shared stories about their own experiences and there are folks who are sharing about how if you are on medicaid or if you have low access to insurance don't have a lot of money like if you find there was somebody who had an ectopic pregnancy um right. which is where the pregnancy yeah grows outside of the um uterus and can be fatal if it's not taken care of and mm-hmm. if you have access to more money you can get a tubal um if it's growing in the fallopian tube you can get a tubal uh, like flushing it out, which mm-hmm. does not sterilize you. and has much less health risks, but, um, and, or you can get the tubes actually removed if you have, if you're a lower income, that's the only option for you. And mm. that can sterilize you. And so just like looking at that lack of choice for a lower income for black and brown people is something that um, I think we forget to talk about is that maybe it's not forced in the way that we're like, you know, holding people down and sterilizing them anymore, but it's still forced sterilization. It's just in a modern mindset.
1: I'm glad you just like named that pro-choice is actually even a privilege because like, even in my intro, you know, I talked about how I think parenthood is a calling of some sort as a Christian, you know, I think about that stuff. Um, But, and then I said, it's a choice, but here you're saying already, like, that's even ignorant for me to say in that sense, because some people even today aren't really even given that choice.
2: Yeah, I think that pro-choice is a really useful political standpoint. Like, I think there's mm-hmm. a reason why we use it. I think that it is, it's one of those things where it's like, if that's what you mean, you should say it, but it's not the whole narrative, you know, right. like it is a, it's an important narrative. It's not the whole
1: narrative. Right. And I think, do you think that is what I think limits us is that to me, it feels like we are only okay as Americans in this culture. Because we live in a culture that's constantly like doing and um, having to, you know, survive really, (laughs) I feel Mm -hmm. like if just constantly going, going. Do you feel like it's, that is what's limiting us is not going further into researching a narrative?
2: Yeah, I do. I do. I think that's actually a really great way to frame it. And I um, haven't heard it said that way, but yes, I think that we are so quick to, um, latch to something and then not be willing to deep dive into who is this actually leaving out. Um, Mm -hmm. we find something that works and we stick with it. And I think that we're also a very individualistic culture. And so, you know, it's all about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And so because of that, that choice narrative really resonates. It's like, oh, it's a personal choice. It's about me. It's about my body. And that's Mm -hmm. so true. It is about you and your body and it should be a personal choice. And also, Personal choices are impacted by systems and impacted by yeah. um, larger barriers. And so, like that individual idea that it's just up to you, I think is very American versus being able to look at the ways that if you have to, if your job is telling you you can't get a day off and you have to get a day off to have your abortion, that's not a choice. What do you do? Yeah. Um, and so, looking at the ways that that disproportionately impacts some people, because I was just doing a training with Planned Parenthood in Massachusetts about this. Um, and a lot of folks who grew up in Massachusetts who had always had and who were like often middle-class or upper-class white people were like, oh, I literally never thought about it that way because the choice was, it always felt like a choice for me. And that's right. so real that we, you know, we get stuck in our own mindsets, our own experiences and they, and they uh, just cloud everything that we see. And that's not a bad thing. It's important to use our own experiences to ground us, but our experiences always come with bias.
1: Right and i think i mean like i have recognized i mean part of part of again of what studying sexuality has helped me understand is how much bu- like how much we find comfort in living in our own bubbles yeah security right so especially if you come from privilege or if you have more privilege right like i think one of the things that scares people or work that keeps us stuck is to know that really, and I really feel that, you know, you know, like I heard a comedian who um, has cystic fibrosis, I want to say, mm-hmm. or, or cerebral palsy, sorry, mm. who who talked about the thing about disability, you know, is that at any moment, any of us can become disabled. Yeah. Right. And I think there's times in the human condition where when we are faced with something that could be really real, that we turn our heads away from it because of fear that we might possess around that certain topic. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that happens in terms of the house the houseless of uh, those who are experiencing not being able to be within a home. I think um our our the systems that are set up are not doing a good job of have, helping people in that, mm-hmm. um, and it's because, again, like we could be struck with a net, uh, any sort of tragedy and lose our homes, mm-hmm. right? And so things like that scare us, and I think also those who grow up with a lot of privilege don't want to see. What may be a life of those who do not have that privilege actually experience on a day to day?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's so true. It's so scary to think that that could be you. Like mm-hmm. it's so much easier to align yourself with um, this vision of all the things that could make you more successful. But it's really challenging to really accept that the majority of Americans are one bad injury, bad car situation um, away from losing all their savings and having to start from scratch. Like that is a very real reality for most people. And the disability thing, I, I remember the first time I had never thought about that. And I remember hearing that, you know, most, not just that any moment you could be disabled, but also that for most people, if you grow, if you age to a certain age, Mm
0: -hmm. you probably
2: will experience disability.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And
2: that is so, that really um, stuck with me as something that fundamentally shifted the way that I view disability and that yeah. it is um, something that we are all going, that many of us are going to experience. And yet for able-bodied people like myself, we really just keep ourselves so segmented from that topic. And I think it also comes up with fatness too. Like we are so mm-hmm. afraid of being fat. We are so afraid of being like fat people when- those are those are just people living their lives and I think that like for for um like straight-sized people or skinnier people like it is something that is an active fear of yours even if you are willing like even if you see fat people's humanity even if you wouldn't say it about other people the fear of being fat holds back everything that you do in regards to your own life
1: oh yeah I was just we well actually the podcast I just recorded ahead of time was talking all about Uh, all about this, about living with fat bodies and Mm. reclaiming body trust is what we just talked about. But also, I uh, started watching the show Ugly Betty on Netflix again. Oh, yeah, classic. (laughs) um, With my daughter, and we have had so many conversations about the way that show, like within the because it's all about like the fashion industry mm-hmm. and how and what they considered fat.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's this one
1: person they call Fat Carol, and I go, I was like, Is she fat? Right,
0: <laughs> no? right.
1: Like, but even so, like, it's just so it's just I can't even find the word <laughs> to say this because it just, yeah. I don't know, it's um, so contextual. It is. It's just like, it just makes me so sad that we are so that we align ourselves to be so superficial. Totally. You know, and I, and it just, it's heartbreaking because we miss out, you know, we miss out on, I think the joy of learning and understanding more people and the joy that life has to offer by setting up these rigid rules of how one is supposed to be, of how we're supposed to navigate and who gets the right for what, you know, it just limits all of our happiness.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you're, you're so right that it's just, it limits all of our happiness. And it's so within our culture, like it's so contextual within the culture where, um, body types have changed forever and body types that have been seen as beautiful have changed forever and Mm -hmm. like now that it is or for however many years that it's been a size zero it fundamentally changes the way that specifically women see themselves and it might not have it doesn't it's not an absolute like it's not an inherent thing and I think about when I'm living in when I'm around sewing people with all kinds of diverse body sizes, I feel differently about my body than I do when I'm with a bunch of like very, very skinny people. And Mm -hmm. I, and I remember having that realization, like, oh, I feel better about myself. I feel less, like, like less bad about my body. And I had to realize why is being the idea of being fat so scary to me? Like, why is it that when I'm around skinnier people, I'm like, oh, I feel so bad because I feel fatter. And that's something that's so bad. Like, is that something that I'm supposed to be so upset by? And so also trying to remind myself that not just are, should I be seeking out feeling more comfortable and better about my body, but I should also be seeking out those critical conversations about with myself about why I feel the way I do.
1: Yeah. And some of it, like, and so much of it comes down to even, you know, our hormones and how they're acting are the genes that we have. And I love, you know, when people are like, not one diet works for the same for one, you know, each person, you know, like all of this stuff plays into it. And so anyway, but what do you wish people were more aware of when it comes to reproductive justice?
2: um also I love how big of a tangent we can just go on <laughs> I know we're
1: like I was like we're going over here I'm like but we're gonna go back here
2: <laughs> yeah no 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 I appreciate you pulling us back <laughs> um but it
1: I mean but it does show like a kind of it, it, it there's intersectionality on all of us
2: yeah
1: right actually I mean... that's
2: exactly sorry good <laughs> so yeah that's exactly what I was gonna say is that what I wish people were more aware of is that reproductive justice is so expansive the four tenets of reproductive justice are the right to have children, the right to not have children, the right to raise our children in safe and sustainable communities, free from the threat of state and individual violence, and the right to bodily autonomy. And
1: hmm. so that's, hmm. I mean,
2: that's everything. That is hmm. everything.
1: And how and are we we're... doing on that?
2: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> how are we
1: doing as a culture? Not uh, not
2: good. so good. Not, but isn't it a beautiful utopia? And yeah. <laughs> I remember the first time I heard those tenants, I interned with Sister Song back in 2019 before I became a full-time staff member, and I remember hearing those tenants for the first time, and I looked at the person next to me, and I said, okay, so Reproductive Justice is everything? Like, isn't that mm-hmm. kind of overwhelming? And she looked at me, and she said, yeah, but isn't it exciting? And I feel like mm-hmm. that has really grounded my whole work, where it's like, yeah, it is. It's everything. It is so expansive, but that is the world that I want to live in. Like That is the most exciting thing is to be able to acknowledge all of these intersections and see a world where you don't just have the right to not have children. Abortion is not the only thing that we're focusing on. You also have the right to have children. Birth justice is just as important as abortion. So being able to have that expansive expansive lens and see it as exciting and invigorating and liberating has really um, fundamentally changed the way that I view it and I really love those four tenants I think they're so like all inclusive and the bodily autonomy one actually was added by our current executive director in the last um 10 years or so I want to say um and the part of that was in order to be more inclusive of our trans siblings because Mm -hmm. something that the reproductive justice movement like all movements have to grapple with is our history of being very focused on cisgender women we are very focused on cisgender black and brown women and mm-hmm. so being able to make sure that we are intentional about expanding that and something that i really love about that is the fact that you know like we are not it's not a stagnant thing like it can change and shift with the culture with the needs like i feel like you know people love talk about like the constitution or whatever all these things is like these stay these stagnant documents yes they're not. they should be oh living
1: documents gosh. yes Oh, 100%, 100%. Yeah, I, you know, and that's, mm, so much has just happened. Okay. (laughs) In my brain. Okay. So that's also how I felt when I learned the definition of sexuality. Mm -hmm. Like, if you look at the World Health Organization's definition of sexuality is expansive, and you're like, oh, Right. Our sexuality is very personal and it's communal and it affects us on multiple dimensions and levels more than we realize. You know, that's why I think so many people get so riled up over it, but also don't, I think, completely understand the depth of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that goes with reproductive justice. But one of the things too, that I've been working on is talking about how sex is movement in a way, in terms Mm. of Anything like related to it, right? How it works in our culture, how it moves and the ideas that we have, the political ideas that happen around it, the way we form relationships with it, things like this, right? Yeah. However, and you talked about stagnant, and I think so much of us live in this stagnant place because of shame. Yeah. And because of the fact that it's really hard right. To look inward and to unpack some of that shame and to be able to open ourselves up to new ideas. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because of that fear that we have, but in order for us, I think, you know, to move forward, to move into a place where we can offer that sense of compassion and curiosity and I would say, like, freedoms and rights to all people who deserve this, right? All people deserve dignity, that we have to be willing to do that, you yeah. know?
2: Yeah, yeah, and to release that shame, because when we have that mm-hmm. shame for ourselves, we also, like, unintentionally will project it onto others, too, or intentionally, right. and then mm-hmm. it just, it ends up driving more than just our own behaviors, it drives our society, like, yeah, 100, conditions. Politicians oh. use shame to make decisions like.
1: Oh. So I mean it's just uh it just kind of rots inside of our body and then we just like have the rot spread. <laughs>
0: it's Absolutely. Just, it's
1: awful.
2: Fear and shame just I mean, I, I sit on this coalition of um that's trying to it's like a we're trying to create a roadmap on how we can handle youth abortion. Um, mm. just because it's it's such a conversation that's been left out. Mm. Um of this you know this post roby wade world and all these things like the people that's impacting the most youth are very much a marginalized community when it comes to abortion and yeah even even the most adamant abortion activists are oftentimes like oh i can't touch that like that is like
0: mm.
2: you know like parents rights whatever it is like you don't want to get mm-hmm. into any trouble and so people don't people don't touch that and so i'm sitting on this coalition that's trying to kind of unpack those topics and something that we were discussing was that when ever the conversation of youth abortion comes up or youth sex ed comes up, adults shut down. It's oh, like, we're so afraid that teenagers are having sex and they are, and mm-hmm. we are so scared that they're having sex. We are so scared that youth have sexuality that we cannot deal with any of the effects, any of the impacts, any of the consequences because the idea of them having sex makes us so
1: uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Which is also like, for me... I mean, yes, right. Like, ideally, I'm a parent. Okay, mm-hmm. so I'm a parent, and where I have been sitting is, I recognize also the way that our hormones are set up in such a yeah. way that um, when we go through puberty, it is increasing. The whole essence of puberty is, right, is for us to become these reproductive humans. And so our bodies are starting to signal this sense of stuff. And for some of us, we start to feel feelings of this could be cool, right? Um, However, you know, as a parent and as a teacher, I talk about we are a whole person. And so we might be having these feelings, but we also have to recognize what that does to our heart, how this does to our mind. Are we able to Mm -hmm. accept responsibility around this? How are we going to feel if someone doesn't call us afterwards? You know, like, what can you have these conversations when I talk about, like, kids all the time ask me um, as an educator, when is the right time to have sex? Mm. Right. When should when can I have sex or when should we have sex? Right. You know, so I talk about, I'm like, well, sex, they'll like are so much of our world is having sex. Right. I'm like, ideally, it's supposed to feel good. Does it always? No. Right because of many different reasons. Not everyone enjoys or has um, pleasurable experiences with sex. Mm -hmm. And so I say, you need to be able to, in my opinion, have conversations of how you're going to be safe. The percentage of STIs are increasing, and it's mostly around 15 to 24 age group, right? And so are we having conversations around safe sex? Um, are you having a conversation of what if these barrier or the device that we're using doesn't work? What would we do if we become pregnant? Are we having these conversations? Are you talking about how you're going, the consent factor of like what you hope the experience could be like? Um, What are your words if you don't feel safe anymore? You know, things like that. I'm like, I think all of that stuff plays into this. And if you are having a hard time having those conversations, then in my opinion, you're not ready for sex. Absolutely. Um, And then we also say, and I say this because my friend said this one time and I thought it was brilliant. And she's like, I also say, if you cannot fart in front of the person, then you can't have sex.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I kind of love that. That's
0: great.
1: (laughs) And I was like, wait a minute, that's brilliant. You know, and kids like laugh and they're like, what? And I'm like, listen, sounds happen, right? I go, it is not what you see in the movies. It is not going to be how this stuff, like you're going to get your shirt stuck. You're going to like fall. You're going, you know, it's supposed to be right. fun. If you can laugh during it, if you, you're going to make sounds, it's going to be weird. Like that's part of the experience too. Totally.
2: You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Like if you can't be vulnerable enough to like, oh, totally. I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to use that. Right. That <laughs> right.
1: That's awesome. like, so like having those conversations, I think are really important. And then, you know, the thing that gets me frustrated is, um, I think so, I think why uh, adults get so um, stuck is because A, one, I hope they can remember some of what it was like for us growing up,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: two, I know that some people are just so stuck in their trauma yeah, that they haven't healed from it and they act and come from that space, yeah. and what I hope is that as adults, we can say, How can we do better for our kids? How can we help them and understand that A, all of us are sexual beings, but B, how do we help them navigate that in a reasonable and responsible way Mm -hmm. and in a loving way, you know, to help minimize trauma
2: rather than projecting our own trauma onto
1: them. Right. Because otherwise we are just recreating a cycle Mm -hmm. and putting again, our trauma onto our kids.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: You know? It's really hard. Yeah. So I mean, I
2: used to my my job before I came to Sister Song was working with young people. I was working for the Center for Community Alternatives, which is an anti-incarceration nonprofit in Syracuse, New York. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was working with youth who have been touched by the incarceration system. So whether that's through a family member or personally, um, and I was doing violence prevention with them and I was doing after school programming. And so I got really close with this group of teenagers who, and I was young when I started this job, I was 22. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, these were teenagers and I was 22. So um, Mm -hmm. it was was such like an older sibling role. And so getting to play that role in their life was so powerful and fulfilling for me. And also I had to really put myself back in the mindset of what it's like to be that age, because Mm -hmm. I just remember them talking about, I had a student who, one of her girlfriends told her that if you have unprotected sex, if you pour a Coke bottle into your vagina, the bubbles will kill the sperm. And oh she my did not No. Yep. Mm. Like that. And, and like things like that. I was just like, oh my God. And I had to remind myself like, because I my immediate response is, what the hell do you mean you put a Coke bottle in your vagina, you know, versus like being like, oh, somebody told you that and you believed it. And in yeah. that moment, you were scared. And like,
0: and it sounds crazy.
1: No, but this is why we need sex education because I've also heard, well, if you do jumping jacks immediately after you have sex, then you can't Mm -hmm. get pregnant. Or if you have sex standing up, then you can't get pregnant.
2: I've read that one.
1: Or if you do it in a hot tub.
2: Yep. Yep. All kinds. all great, all all great rumors that have spread between teenagers who are just trying to have sex for the first time, you know, like between a bunch of kids who don't know any better. And I think like it's just so when I was a teenager, I don't think I could have named an adult that I trusted enough to talk about mm. sex with. I definitely mm. don't think I could. And I think for a lot of them, I was in some ways like the first one that they may have felt that connection with. And I just think that there are so many young people who just need that. They need oh, yeah. that.
1: And that's what I want. That's what I try to help do is help adults become that person. You know, I teach parents and I'm like, the goal is for your kids to come to you. That's Mm -hmm. right. So how do you open yourself up to be that person? How do you get to that point? However, in many cases, that's also privilege, right? Because many kids grow up in homes where their parents aren't safe, you know, or, Um, don't have their parents and Mm -hmm. so I feel like those are the conversations to recognize too because being taking away like our country has been doing or not advocating for sex education in public schools is taking that education away from so many kids who need it you know because they don't have that safe adult in their life you know and then we have these issues of People trying to figure out why teens are pregnant, and it's like, well, because they think if they put a coke bottle in their vagina, right,
0: Right. that will stop it,
1: or they watch the latest TikTok like craze and follow that. So it's like, I think that's to me is the biggest thing I struggle with of what is happening right now with reproductive rights for women or people with uteruses Mm -hmm. uh that they're putting out these laws and things but then they're also stripping away sex ed right so then talk to me about your opinion or what sister song is how they are responding to this
2: yeah yeah i mean it is you're so right that it's so jarring that it all works in this collective process like we take away abortion rights and we get rid of sex ed and we make contraception harder, and we do all these things that are inherently contradictory from the goals, in my personal opinion, from the goals of stopping people from having pregnancies that they don't want, and Mm -hmm. stopping people from um, not being, from having children they can't take care of, and yet we continue to make all these decisions as, as one after another, you know, and so it really does make it so scary, and um, I mean, I think that the unwanted pregnancies are going to go up. I also think that, so I'm an abortion doula, um, and I work with folks who are going through the process of deciding whether or not they want to have an abortion, so if somebody finds out that they're pregnant and makes a call to an abortion clinic, um, they can get connected with me, and I can help them work through that process of trying to decide what the best decision is for them and their family. um, And then also holding their hand through the process itself, if they do decide to move forward with an abortion and then being present for them afterwards as they deal with whether it's joy or grief or whatever other emotion comes up, guilt. Um, I've seen it all and um, Mm -hmm. helping people navigate through that process. And if there's a couple things I've really experienced is that if people don't want to be pregnant, they will figure out a way to not be pregnant. Like carrying a pregnancy to term is often the absolute last resort if somebody does not want to be pregnant. Hmm. Like that, I think that people are very, you know, focused on, um, oh, they're going to, we're going to have more babies that we can't take care of. And that is true. The foster care system is so broken. It is so jarring to me that anybody would want more babies in our society i used to sorry i'm gonna go on a super tangent but i used to um do clinic escorting when i was younger um and people would come there who were um protesting and they would have like eight kids with them and they would be like oh if you they would yell at people who are going into the clinic and say if you don't get that abortion i will adopt your child and i'm like mm-hmm. okay like how, how many babies are you going to adopt like there is no there is no end to this mm-hmm. that is not an option and like I don't believe that the world is better off for having children that are not wanted by their parents but anywho i digress um (laughs) the but the focus when i'm when i'm abortion doula is so much of what it is is that people will find a way to get that abortion and they're so scared because i mean the the coat hanger imagery is not really something that's happening anymore people are not putting coat hangers in their vagina anymore it's extremely extremely rare but what is happening is that people are getting medication abortions that are super, super safe. Mifepristone and misoprostol are super safe, um, but they're so scared that they're going to going to get incarcerated for it. Mm-hmm. I, when I was working with abortion patients before um, Roe v. Wade fell and before there was so much confusion around what is is not legal, noting that there's always been access issues, but beforehand, people could grieve their experience. They could say, okay, what do I need to do that's best for me? Like, this is a decision I'm making. All right, I'm feeling grief about this. How do I work through that? Versus now, most of what I do is helping people navigate a very complicated legal system that they're terrified of. Most of what I do is people coming into this, coming to me and saying, I need to get an abortion pill. I saw that you can get them online. I am so scared that I'm going to get in trouble for this. Like, how do I not get in trouble for this? And so there's no opportunity to actually go through the emotional process that is necessary to have any sort of reproductive um, process. You know, they, they deserve to have dignity and time to grieve, to process, to think about their experience. And instead, they're so focused on fear Um, and confusion that there's no opportunity for that and I feel like that's something that isn't that is central to this new era of politics Mm -hmm. is that level of confusion is that the laws are constantly changing nobody can get a straight answer everyone's confused about what they can and cannot do they don't know what's legal they don't know what's not and then they stay so afraid of the system and that they are essentially stagnant they have no choice
1: again and then this is what creates trauma. Right. So now I think what people are not realizing is the, like the effects that this is going to have down the road. Mm -hmm. Right. So these, these, uh, people who are trying to access this or whatnot, um, and the families who are impacted by this are going to have extreme trauma. Mm -hmm. And then if we are not taking care of one another, And that trauma gets passed and it shows up in other ways. And I think we're starting to see how trauma has been showing up in other ways of what has been and how people are reacting and how people are taking stuff out on one another right now. And the other thing is that, you know, like one of the reasons why I do this work is to help end sexual abuse because I recognize, because I, know, and I have seen and have experienced the way generational, you know, sexual abuse that's been passed on, how it impacts our lives, and how it impacts the way people feel about themselves, and how it impacts um, the way they go into relationships. And I think so many of our systems around families and around prenatal care. And around um, taking care of mothers after they give birth, and around how even school and work system like days are set up, around how daycare <laughs> is set up, yeah. all of these systems are not working, and they are adding to the sense of trauma that people are holding and yeah. the exhaustion that people are experiencing, and what happens is that when we do not get a chance to work on our trauma and to reframe and to change the narrative, that gets passed on. And, I, and all of this stuff, this taking away sex education, these putting um, more restrictions on accessibility for people, the increase of pricing in all of the medical institutions that we have and insurance and lack thereof for people is causing more trauma. And it's going to, I think, raise the amount of abuse and assault that people will experience.
2: I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think that, I mean, something that we've been talking about through our, we do some healing justice work is talking about the ways that trauma is always seen as this like one-off event of something that happens that you have to work through versus Mm -hmm. looking at trauma as this, long-term impact which that can be a trauma and also that long-term impact of systems is a trauma like never not getting to see your children because you are too busy working all the time because you have to work four jobs to Mm -hmm. keep yourself afloat like that is a trauma that is a systemic trauma and so being able to see the ways that that shows up in the body and shows up in we are not just heads on sticks we are your bodies and it impacts our nervous system it impacts our Everything that we do, and it comes shows up in ways that you'll never expect. And so being able to heal that requires that healing of um of the body as well. like doing breathing practices, doing mindfulness practices, all of these things that are deeper than just talk therapy is amazing and also can only get you so far and we need to get this mm-hmm. tension out of our bodies,
1: yeah, yeah. So what are some of the things too that sister song is doing around helping the communities? around marginalized people how do they address some of that stuff around trauma issues Yeah.
2: yeah so sister song has its hands in a lot of pieces of the work and i think a big part of that is because as we've talked about it's such an expansive goal it's such a massive goal and so um we do a lot of different pieces both from the front end of educating people to try and avoid these situations and then also on the back end of how do we support people and to me it's like this this complicated swirling of both survival and liberation work so the survival work is like okay how do we support people who are who are living in these systems that are so broken and that are hurting them how do we help them thrive as much as possible and then that liberation work is how do we stop these systems from impacting our lives and from harming us in these ways. And so Sister Song, we have a lot of different programs, but one of them is our education program. And so we do large-scale trainings for organizations on how reproductive justice can um, be used as a tool. Uh, so we'll do those for Planned Parenthoods across the country um, on how they can use reproductive justice as a tool, how they can be culturally competent, how they can be looking at race and power and privilege as a lens as they're working with patients mm-hmm. um, we have our training and education program which we also do things like um deep dives into birth justice deep dives into healing justice and child care um just really looking at those intersections of issues that deal with reproductive justice so that folks can get as grounded as possible in that work and find reproductive justice as their political home the way that mm-hmm. we have found it as our political home mm-hmm. um We also have state-based coordinators in three key states. So we work out of Georgia, North Carolina, and Kentucky. I am personally in Georgia, or I'm sorry, I'm in North Carolina, but most of our staff is in Georgia. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we started those in those states specifically because those are where our executive director and our deputy director are from. And so that to me is really powerful, just looking at the ways that the work starts at home and the work starts in our
0: communities.
2: So um, we work in those three states. Also, we are a southern based national collective, and so that focus on the south, and all the south is a hub of organizing, and I think that a lot of times the south is counted out as some place that's like, Oh, it's so backwards. It's not moving forward like the we just leave them like they let them figure it out, and I really believe that the south is a full of vibrant communities of color, most mostly like these are states with huge populations of black and brown people in comparison to democratic states like Maine that are, that's the whitest state in America. It's really easy to be a Democrat when you don't actually have to deal with people who are different than you. And so <laughs> we're looking at states like Mississippi, yeah. these are states that have huge populations of low income black and brown people and being able to say that these people are being held hostage by a Republican government, by a super, super red state.
0: Um, mm-hmm. And
2: noting that so many and the majority of our social movement in this country have started in those communities It started in the civil mm-hmm. rights movement started in Alabama it started in Mississippi and Louisiana these are places that are hubs for social justice so we can't leave them behind if anything we should be putting them on the forefront and so sister mm-hmm. song really believes in um, being able to put these communities on the forefront. At the same time as realizing that it's really hard to do the work down here. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's it's scary. It can be very scary, especially as people like as somebody I'm twenty five and I am I have a uterus and I at some point do want to have children and also I am very afraid of getting pregnant right now. Like it makes oh. it challenging to live. I mean
1: one hundred I, I keep thinking about I mean, really, in all honesty, just with how the world is right now. As a woman, I don't know if I would have kids again, to be honest, and my own personal viewpoint. Um, because, you know, I remember I had my kids when I would, my um, first child when I was 29. And uh, I mean, it does, it like changes you. Like, I love, I love being a mom, I love my children. Um, but I became very aware very quickly of how, so when I had my kids, I had to be on government assistance because I was in grad school and I became very aware of how unjust our, our society is around reproductive care and health. And then the way that, um, certain people are treated because of their race and because of whatever class they're in compared to other people and the way that I was treated differently because I was a white woman compared to the woman sitting next to me who was Hispanic, right? Um, In terms of how people talked to me when I needed to go get assistance with things. And it was in those experiences where I was like, what in the world, right? And pregnancy, and I feel like being pregnant too, is so expensive to Um, take prenatals to go get your checkups, to make sure the baby is doing well, to make sure you're doing well. There is so much, there's not enough support, in my opinion, for mothers after they give birth or for people who, after they give birth, um, it is a trauma. Like giving birth is traumatic. I know we talk about the beauty of it, but some people experience extreme health issues, health scares. And we're exhausted and we expect uh, people to just come right out of it instead of taking care of the person who delivered
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or
1: who uh, had a C-section or whatnot. Um, and it just is surprising to me. It's surprising to me. I think the rhetoric that you hear around childbirth and child care and the beauty of family but our systems are set up to fail us almost every time.
2: Yes, that's so true. So true. I mean, just looking at, we have a birth justice team and like the, and just looking at the ways that Black women experience such high rates of maternal mortality. But at the same time, even white women in this country have higher rates of maternal mortality than in other, other developed nations. Like this is something mm-hmm. that impacts all of us. It's systemic, it is not just about marginalization it's about something fundamentally wrong with the american system the -hmm. american healthcare system
1: yeah yeah and i also as much as i love being a mom and i i pride myself in it and you know i had always wanted to be a mom it is also the most loneliest experience i've had Mm -hmm. and part of that has to do with the fact of like where we were in our life and we moved and had new communities and different things like that but it should not be lonely right like We like in my opinion, like looking at communities and how they used to raise kids, right? It was a communal experience. It was, you know, something where people were more together. And now and I had done a you know, a podcast on this earlier, but where (laughs) we talked about like the loneliness of motherhood and that modern motherhood is one of the loneliest experiences. And, And so like that also, you know, it's putting so much pressure on on people that it's just It sets us up again for dysfunction, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And so I think there needs to be just a total change in how we view and how we view families and how we view um, parenthood, because I think the way we are doing it right now is actually not setting us up for success.
2: Yes, absolutely. It takes a village to raise a child.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. There's so many things, (laughs) so many things. I know, really, like hours, but. I know well and I've talked to many women many women who have said things like I feel like I've been duped mm-hmm.
2: and, and it's so scary where you can't like there's so much shame around saying something like that too yeah. like and that's so real so many people are experiencing that and yet, yet how do you you know how do you express that like motherhood wasn't always cracked up to be
1: yeah Right, and then there's also the conversation of having around, you know, men as caregivers and things like that. We always leave that out of the conversation, okay. but the truth of the matter is, is there are a lot more men now staying home taking care of kids as well, mm-hmm. where they also don't have communities because we don't see men as, or we don't um, recognize either um, men who stay at home or single dads, even as often as we do stay-at-home moms or single moms. You know, so there's like communities I think that are just being lost in the shuffle and it's just not it's not helpful
2: oh lord we could have a whole conversation about men's mental health I mean men are lonely it is so hard in the community
1: oh yeah oh my gosh we could be here for days so (laughs) (laughs) let's do this (laughs) tell me (laughs) okay real quick I know we're running out of time the other thing I want to talk about if we could is it's really hard to have this conversation around reproductive rights because people have strong feelings for a number of reasons, and I get that. I'm wondering how and what, and if you have any insight or if you've ever thought about, like how do we create environments where we could have these conversations in a more productive way, where we could hear one another, where we could say, I see what you're saying. I understand now where you're coming from. How could we come together <laughs> for the betterment of community to move ourselves forward to help us, you know, relinquish trauma and to be supportive of one another? Does that yeah. exist? <laughs> or what are ways that you personally or has Sister Song thought about these things?
2: Yeah, I think, I think it does exist. I mean, I am an optimist at heart. I really do believe in a better future. And I think that hate is easy and love is hard. And a lot Mm -hmm. of times like the, the far right invites everybody in. You got a little bit of hate in your heart for somebody? Cool. Welcome. Versus Mm -hmm. we are so focused on everyone getting everything right and it's just not possible and so that's something that i love about reproductive justice is that because it's so expansive everyone can find something they care about in it like Mm -hmm. maybe somebody is not down with abortion like or at this point like is not feeling like that is where they're at but they do care about maternal mortality that is something that resonates with them maybe they're a Mm -hmm. mother they Mm -hmm. finding that thing that speaks to them within the reproductive justice framework that's how this is how i approach it is that like, you know, that speaks to you. Great. Let's start there. Like, let's talk about maternal mortality. Let's talk about why that matters to you. And then have you seen this framework? It's a larger thing. Like, how do you feel about not just the right to have children, but the right to not have children being part of this framework, like expanding from that place, finding the place where people care and everyone yeah. has something within reproductive justice that they care about every single person.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Well, I hope so too, because I just feel like right now we are so quick to just fight instead of like be in a space where we could come together and have conversation and say, let me hear your side or, oh, I see that. You know what I mean? It just, it makes me feel sad because there's just too much of the fighting instead of wanting to come to us or saying I'm right. You know, like if we can let go of I'm right, <laughs> yeah. you're wrong and and be able to humble ourselves to be able to learn, you know, that'd be great.
2: Yeah, it's that culture shift work. I mean, Sister mm-hmm. Song is all about that culture shift work because like there's just so many we can change laws all day, every day. And that's so important. But changing the way people think and mm-hmm. getting to have that culture of love and acceptance that wants to learn and wants to be together and be collective, I feel like is the most important thing that we can do with one another, um, is not shutting each other out.
1: Right, for sure. So one of the questions, because we are about ready at time, mm-hmm. that I ask my guests is what story are you reframing for yourself today? So I'm curious what that would be for you.
2: Hmm. I think that the story that I am reframing today. Since we're having this big conversation, is thinking about um, what a better future can look like. Because I think that when Roe v. Wade got overturned, mm-hmm. the idea was, oh no, we're moving backwards. How can we be- get back to where we were? I don't mm-hmm. want to get back to where we were. I mm-hmm. want to get better. Roe v. Wade wasn't good enough. We had people, I mean, the federal mandate was wonderful. And also, people who live in rural areas who are poor, who are black and brown or trans or who don't have. Access to abortion care have been living in a post Roe v Wade world for a long time.
0: Mm. They were not
2: able to get. They were still having to travel long distances. They still couldn't afford it. And so I don't. I don't want that. I want something better. And so I am reframing this idea that we are moving backwards and need to get back to that place. And using this as an opportunity, a very unfortunate political state state that we're in right now, but using as opportunity to see something even better that we create rather than just sticking to what we had in the 70s Mm
1: -hmm. yeah that's great but that's interesting that you say you know again and I feel like I had blinders on like to that right of the amount of of effort it it takes for people to even try to navigate you know the travel the expenses I just think like for so many of us that's not even a place where we go in our brains um those who have privilege and so I think it's important to continue to bring that you know story of many people's experiences to light yeah. to help people understand that um and especially in rural communities also where they you know there's not as much access but there's also not a lot of education happening you know Simran, I appreciate you so much and the work that you're doing with Sister Song. If people want to understand and learn more about Sister Song, can you talk to us about how they can do that?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, if folks want to get involved in Sister Song, I would really recommend joining our membership program. It's a wonderful way to stay connected with the work and um, support us. And we also have social media, uh, Sister song underscore WOC, which stands for Women of Color. Uh, we have a website, all of that. So please check us out. I also want to plug um, our birth justice care fund, which is a mutual aid fund that we have where we give resources to people who are birthing or who have recently birthed. And it just really speaks to what you're saying, where it's like being pregnant is so expensive and Mm -hmm. having a new baby is so expensive and so stressful and all these things. And I just want to highlight that you are not alone and that this there, there are resources out there. So if anyone needs funding for anything, diapers, doulas, whatever, um, mm-hmm. being able to access this fund is an opportunity available for you.
1: Yeah. And I want to highlight, I never thought that I could afford a doula when I was yeah. <laughs> pregnant because I didn't have the education. I didn't. I thought it was only for those who could have um, had a wealth of money. And like I said, I, my husband and I were in seminary, actually. <laughs> Um, Oh wow! When we were pregnant, (laughs) and so for the first time. But there's so many organizations out there who offer that service for low income, and I think that's just absolutely amazing because I think doulas are so very important.
2: Yes, yes, and I do all my abortion doula work for free or on sliding scale. So if anyone anyone needs a resource for that, you are more than welcome to contact me on Instagram or. Via email, whatever works.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and just providing more education around this topic.
2: Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a wonderful conversation.